Hello, my name is Christopher Monroe, and welcome to the Soundtrack to a Life. Welcome back to the Soundtrack to a Life. Chris here, hosting a show where we talk about old bands. And with me here today, more than six feet from me, recording via Skype in the midst of a pandemic, is Mr. Olav Rockney. Olav, tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Uh, my name is Olav. I'm a public servant in Edmonton, but in my spare time, I do stand-up comedy, and I've known Christopher Keith Monroe for... 25 years give or take yeah actually uh i think we've known each other about as long as the album you wanted to talk about has existed yeah actually that's about right and how are you enjoying your pandemic not loving it not loving it reading a lot cooking at home more and getting a lot of stuff done at my actual job because as it turns out shifting Alberta's schools from in-class education to distance learning takes a lot of work, and I'm in the Ministry of Education, and that's what we're working on. It's good, smart, nonpartisan work. Nice. Yeah, seems, I like it. Seems useful. Uh, for those of you listening at home, as we record this, we have been pandemicizing for about three weeks now. Uh, I'm entering three weeks of leaving my home the minimal amount, uh, which is why we're doing this over Skype rather than in person over a beer. By the time you listen to it, one hopes we'll be allowed to go out in public again. If you hear this and we're still not, trust that I am fully insane. I just assume everyone who's listening to this is uh, living La Vita Mad Max and is blasting this from the doof wagon as they drive across the uh, sandy expanse. And this is how they're keeping themselves awake on those long night drives while chasing Imperator Furiosa. Yep. Now more than ever, you need to hear Two Dudes with Opinions podcasts, <laughs> the only art form that can still be made <laughs> post-COVID-19. <laughs> and Olav and I are here today talking about the Smashing Pumpkins 1995 album, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. And the key word is infinite. Can we talk about ambition for a second? I've alluded on this show to the fact that I love a huge, bloated mess of a record now and then. And we'll be covering a couple of them on here before this show has run its course. The double albums, the triple albums, the huge, ambitious statements from artists who believe their genius to be unassailable. It's fascinating to watch what a creator does when they think that they can do no wrong. And even when the whole thing goes down in flames, at least it's an entertaining disaster to watch. More interesting still, however, are the cases when an artist sits down to make an overlong, overambitious masterpiece and manages to succeed in doing exactly that. It might be tough for someone today to imagine, but there was a time where there was nothing embarrassing about harboring an unironic love for Billy Corrigan. The last days of Smashing Pumpkins, his solo material and the post-reunion records have always left me cold. 
and post-melancholy his reach has in several instances exceeded his grasp. But for a stretch of time over the first half of the 90s, he was one of the most consistently interesting creative voices in alternative rock. During the period in which alternative rock was at its most interesting and creative, and Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, I think, was his high watermark. Released on double CD or triple LP, the 28 tracks here showcase not only what Mr. Corrigan and his pumpkins are capable of as a band, but also the best part of what guitar music of this era had to offer. Big, beautiful, sprawling, and above all, meant to be played very, very loud. This record introduced drum loops, piano, and in cases, a full live orchestra to what had previously been a very straightforward art school punk band. Smashing Pumpkins set out in a very conscious way with this record to make their grand defining statement, to record, in their own words, the wall for Generation X. And if this isn't that, I don't see what other record of this period could make that claim. Melancholy was released right as the wave of grunge and alternative rock was about to crash onto the shore and retreat. And with hindsight, you can kind of see the elements that would eventually bring this genre crashing down. But at the time, it was thrilling. And, to me, it still is. It's a record that sounds like it could, at any moment, collapse under the weight of its own ambition and the band's various egos. And that never quite does. And that tension is probably what makes the dizzying heights to which it climbs so exciting. This is, I think... The last truly weird album from the grudge alternative era, before people figured out what this sort of music was supposed to sound like, and it wound up getting a lot more sanitized. And it's a beautiful note for that era of guitar music to end on, as the decade moved on to the next thing. It's a moment of transition. It's a defining masterpiece. It's everything that's wrong with the band that made it, and everything that's beautiful about them. It's a lot of things to a lot of people, and it tries to be all of those things, and while in places it shouldn't work, it kind of does. It's very much a product of its time, and one of that time's defining works. So, Olaf, you'd never heard Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness the whole way through, and now you have. What do you think? It's very long. It's like three hours long. It's extraordinarily long. And I feel, obviously, I was aware of the singles. I'd heard many of the singles time and time again. You know, everyone knows Bullet with Butterfly Wings, 1979, Tonight, Tonight, you know. These are iconic individual songs. And yet, there's some good, really good, lesser-known tracks. You know, I quite liked... I'm, I'm zero. Zero's good. 33. That's good. You know, I kind of lost it with XYU. I'm just looking over my notes. Beautiful. Eh. And I feel like the album could have been shorter. Like, I know you like a big, sprawling, ambitious piece. In fairness, I sometimes like a big, sprawling, ambitious piece. Because you're right. Like, for example, the most recent Drake record, I would have very much enjoyed somebody doing an edit of that's a tight 45 minutes. Okay. That's sort of what I'm feeling like here. You know, they start with that, that instrumental piece that goes, moves into Tonight Tonight. And you almost feel like it is going to be this big, brassy, whimsical record, right? It's promising you this Georges Méliès style soundscape, like the video to Tonight Tonight actually delivers on. And then it drops away completely. Like, that conceit of an overarching narrative is dropped. And they go right into Jelly Belly and Zero, which are like a 90-degree turn. I wanted more of a through line. 
like if we're going to do this as a as a high concept big ideas album it feels like more focus might have been good split it into two albums maybe they kind of did with the cd released the first was the day side and the other was the night side but even there like i i know what you're talking about and i know how it splits right so 33 1979 those are on disc two and i'm just honestly i'm just not feeling that divide i guess the second cd is more electronic a little bit harder a little rougher but still like 1979 has that full-on new order ballad friendliness to it like 1979 is a very friendly song like it's it's you don't think no it absolutely is like uh 1979 bullet with butterfly wings tonight tonight the correct number of tonights by the way the song tonight does nothing for me genesis is tonight 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 too much tonight this is the correct amount um the first track of butterfly wings is not friendly it's I mean, if anything, I do think Bullet with Butterfly Wings is the high point of the entire double album. You know, it's that excess, that driving bass line, like the best title of any song they ever did. And the over-the-top snarl of it, like that is a memorable banger. Yeah, like it is like with the benefit of hindsight, turn your guitar up to 11, distort it, put a lot of reverb on the vocals and then some on the drums, and then half whisper the song, half scream the other half, and you have crafted a radio-friendly unit shifter from 1995. But it sounds, on Bullet With Butterfly Wings especially, like really visceral and sincere to me. Yeah, it does. It's just a simply great song. Yeah. But then you go right into To Forgive and Fuck You, An Ode to No One. <laughs> those aren't good or memorable. Like, personally, those would be two of the first songs I would cut from a more focused version of the album. I would be very interested in hearing your mix specifically of this record at a tight 45. If you could get that to me before this uh, episode airs, I'll link people to it in the show notes. Ooh, I don't think I have the confidence to do that there are people who are a little obsessive with this band and i don't want to offend them too desperately well that's why you're doing it through my social media presence if they threaten to murder anyone it's me like honestly having spoken to some hardcore i don't know what you call fans of smashing pumpkins pumpkin heads i, I believe it's incorrigibles incorrigibles okay <laughs> If it's not, it should be. If I had to pick which fandom I'd rather have angry at me, I would rather have Juggalos angry at me than Incorrigibles. Do you know what? I ain't never had a problem with a Juggalo. You might be making the right call. Yeah, totally. Smashing Pumpkins fans are the Bernie Bros of grunge. What? I'm throwing that out there. Then Okay, then who is... This is such niche content. Who's the Joe Biden of grunge, then? Ooh, I'm going to say Pearl Jam. That's insane. Pearl Jam show up and deliver year after year. Sure. So, so did Joe Biden for 30 years. All right. I just listened to the new Pearl Jam. 
So I am going to be defending them really passionately for the next six to eight weeks. And then I'm going to go back to listening to those first five. That is my entire relationship with that band. But like... One Hickenlooper of grunge. Oh, God. Macy Playground? Accepted. Yeah. Completely accepted. It's kind of weird that these guys got lumped in with that whole thing. Like, they're not even from Seattle. Yeah, they really are grunge, other than the soft, soft, loud, soft, loud, soft, loud kind of structure. And when they came out, that was what was happening, so... Also... You're right. Like, Billy Corgan enunciates far more than any of the major grunge artists. Yeah, because they didn't come out of that scene. Like, they're an art school band from Chicago at a time when there was a really distinctive sonic language to loud guitar bands that was taking hold of everything. Yeah, and you really hear the art schooliness in this album that doesn't show up in anything else in grunge. I guess things I really like about the album are the intro and outro, that that instrumental intro, that farewell and goodnight, the handful of songs that really tie into that theme, and the hits. You know, like, I'm going to say, there's a reason those hits are the songs that are memorable from this album. Yeah, those are some iconic singles. For a record this long, and this weird to debut at number one and then go on to sell 10 million copies. This music was friggin' everywhere. And that one t-shirt with a star on it. Yes. From the Bullet with Butterfly Wings video. So you would not want to hear a version of this that was longer. I'm aware there is one. Yes. Significantly longer. The first drafts involve 56 songs rather than 28. And I'm sure there are people who listen to it in its entirety on a regular basis. I, if I had a copy, would absolutely listen to it minimum once. There is some chance that it never got a second listen from me. But I'm learning, as the Prince catalog gets re-released in exhausting detail, Yes, that I have a lot of room in my heart to sit down with a record that I love and listen the unholy shit out of it for four or five hours. Because I definitely polluted my Twitter's timeline with a five-hour rundown of Purple Rain when they released that with everything. It is kind of an outlier in their chronology, isn't it, though? Like, Melancholy is a far more... Like, despite its bloat and despite its length, there's a lot more on there that your casual fan is going to enjoy than, you know, Gish, Siamese Dream, Adore, Machina, I don't know, Zeitgeist. Are there apps other than those? Several, but those are the major ones. I think Siamese Dream between Disarm and Today got their radio work in. Like, Siamese Dream was a big enough record to put them in a position in their career where they were allowed to do this. Which you cannot. Like, nobody can make a record like this without already being one of the biggest artists in the world. Your label will shut that shit right down the second that you suggest it. If you hadn't had two videos all over MTV and much music and a multi-platinum success in your back pocket to show them. They started this immediately after the Siamese Dream Tour ended. There was no break in between. Really? Yeah. Because recording an album like this must have been exhausting. I have 
zero doubt. And with a um, producer like, that they hadn't worked with previous either. Who was the producer? For this one, they worked with Flood and they abandoned all of their previous recording practices in order to relearn how to make music anew. Their previous record was produced by Butch Vig, who produced a lot of the alternative music from the early 90s. Oh, you know I'm a big fan of Vig. I know. Are you more of a Siamese dream person than this? How can I put this? I was on a big retro kick when this album came out, okay? So I was mostly listening to 60s and 80s stuff, not 70s. And then this came out... And I was just disconnected from the music scene at that moment. And then I got into garbage. And so I checked out all the albums that, you know, are the Butch Vig catalog, but never got around to this one. Mm. Well, this one was this one was not Vig. The previous one was. Well, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I just didn't know who had produced it and why it was so considered so great. And I sort of get it now. I sort of get it. Is this your favorite Smashing Pumpkins album? I don't know if it's the one that I think is best, but it is the one that I like the most. Like, I'm the same way with The Clash. Yeah? I know that they have definitely done better work than Sandinista, and Siamese Dream probably does hang together in a technical sense better than Melancholy, but the fact that they would take a big swing like this makes me love the band more. Yeah, I can see that. And, like, there are definite moments of genius on this album. I never got the worship of Billy Corgan before now. And I don't know how this band managed not to break up immediately after. Because this just does not sound like an album where they were having a lot of fun. Billy Corgan was, sure. Yeah, and he's always been an I-want-dictatorial-control-over-the-music-that-my-band-is-making type of figure and more so here it's like um kevin roland and um Turaye, you know yeah. huge ambition band leader who is a perfectionist and it shows and you can hear it but who wants to work with them again yeah i'll buy that this would be a stressful that's... band to be in yeah which is weird because like for someone who requires that amount of control over the product that he's making between the extremely long introductions to songs and the instrumental tracks you can go a pretty long time without ever hearing billy corrigan (laughs) that's really true yeah like you can tell that it comes from a belief in the project itself rather than necessarily fluffing his own ego because he's not afraid to not be front and center he just needs to have total control over the thing that he's not front and center of but isn't that the same? <laughs> like, if you have complete control over it, then everybody knows that this is your thing, that it is your creation. And it, if it is genius, then everybody knows it is your genius. Sure, but at the time, previous to the internet, did people know that he was in control to this degree? Because I definitely, at the time, assumed this was a band where people contributed different things like any other band. And there was no going on Twitter to check. Hmm. And I knew very little about the band until, uh, just one second. Okay. Sorry about that. That can be cut out, I hope. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I go over it again and I cut out all of the uh, weird interjections taking a minute to find your place or lippy smacky noises. 
Your podcast sounds great, by the way. I did listen to a few episodes just preparing myself, just to remind myself what's the cadence of. I thought your your episode on We Were Dead Before the Ship Even Sank was particularly strong. That was a fun one to record. That's such a good record. Modest Mouse, fucking great. Fucking great. Right. Speaking of... Given the general cadence of Pacific Northwestern indie bands from 2000 to 2010, did Smashing Pumpkins win grunge? I think no. Grunge evolved in the way that many genres evolve, which is to say, given enough time, all musical movements tend towards overly complicated and incomprehensible modalities. So you go from the rock of the 60s, and what does that become? It becomes prog rock. And so over 15 years, it goes from, hey, hey, love me do, love me do, to 18-minute guitar solos that no one really enjoys. They appreciate them intellectually, if that. The same happened with grunge. I'll buy that, because, yeah, by 2005... All of the bands were throwing Smashing Pumpkins-y moves or Beck moves rather than Alice in Chains moves or Soundgarden moves. And the songs weren't radio hits anymore because no one is really aiming for hooks or fun. I don't know. Some of those bands were fun. Dandy Warhols was fun. Yeah, but Dandy Warhols were a throwback. Modest Mouse was fun. I love Modest Mouse. Decemberists are fun. Really? See them live. Okay. (laughs) Decemberists are fun. Yes, they make headphones records. But they make headphones records that sound really fucking good live. And jazz went from, like, wildly comprehensible stuff to stuff that I don't understand. Yep. And this, this band especially is a skill tester in that regard. Yeah. In that they started out as a very straightforward art punk band of their era and maintained a pretty consistent trajectory toward the, let's say, band they are today. And then you can pick the intersection of art school and punk band uh, where the balance is correct for you. Yeah. And there's a decent chance that records past that point won't do as much to anything for you, or previous to that point, you won't be that interested in. For me, it happens to be Siamese Dream and this, but if somebody came up to me and went, my two favorite Smashing Pumpkins records are this and a door, totes get it. Now, here's something that, that strikes me. You know, the Beatles with the White Album, that strikes me as an apt comparator, just because it's a big, sprawling ego piece. Absolutely. Truly phenomenal single songs and i know you hate how the beatles perform them but there are some truly great songs on the white album there are some solid songwriters in that band and yeah that's definitely of a piece with this the beatles did it the wall is probably like that if you don't want to follow the story of a man named pink slowly losing his mind sandinista is like that my beautiful dark twisted fantasy by kanye had some of that energy to it yeah but do those albums really fail as hard as the White Album does or as Melancholy does when they are at their worst? 
Like, I legitimately don't know because those aren't albums that I've ever really gotten into. Sandinista at its worst is a fucking disaster. Oh. I love it. I wouldn't take out any of the tracks that are children singing previous Clash songs, but the children singing previous Clash songs are not necessary for anyone's enjoyment of this piece of music. Are they as bad as Rocky Raccoon? Rocky Raccoon is an important song about... You're just saying that. You're just... Murdering your ex-wife. And without it, Eminem would not have had his whole career. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to say one thing. I've listened to this album from beginning to end once. I doubt I will do so again. I've listened to it beginning to end a couple of times. First, when we first tried to record this podcast, and then when prepping for the reattempt. But... That checks out. It's extremely long. Yeah. I was talking with uh, Mike the previous episode to when this comes out. We were talking about Tool. Yeah. And in general about records that require an enormous level of buy-in from you. And how there's no such thing as a casual Tool listener. And this is kind of the same way. Like, you have to want this to get into it. There's no putting it on at a party and just letting it play in the background. Yeah, and it is sort of a shame that we have moved to a music distribution model where no one needs to get the full creator's vision to get the three songs that they have heard on the radio. Like, if this came out today, no one would have heard anything other than four songs. I think it's better today than it was eight or ten years ago. Why is that? Spotify lets you sit down with an album and the only investment that you're putting in is your time. So if somebody puts out a longer piece or a more themed piece, more people are going to sit down with it all the way through. Whereas iTunes was really bad for you buy that one song that you can't get out of your head and you wind up with artists with multiple multi-platinum singles and close to zero album sales at all. And that scans, that that checks out completely. I mean, you know, I am still in the music as a product, not a service model. So I am in the iTunes slash purchased as DRM free owning my music collection paradigm still. That checks out. I just need something to listen to on my phone when I buy a vinyl for around the house. You own this one on vinyl? Uh, I do not. There was a very premium version of this that was out recently that I was staring at, but it was wildly expensive. And it's looking like I'm going to be protractedly out of work for a while due to the apocalypse of it all. Yeah. There's a couple of songs from this that are definitely good apocalypse listening, though. Like, you can totally picture the Dufourier jamming to Bullet with Butterfly Wings. Yeah, you absolutely could. You absolutely could. You could definitely picture one of the war boys spraying uh, silver spray paint over his mouth, turning to his friend and screaming, emptiness is loneliness and loneliness is cleanliness and cleanliness is godliness and God is empty just like me, before leaping to his death. Yes, definitely. That'd be a good tattoo. What, the war boy with a word (laughs) saying all of that? Yeah, maybe. Fair. People don't get enough war boy tattoos. No, they don't. They do have enough Smashing Pumpkins tattoos, though. You are correct. There are so many Smashing Pumpkins tattoos in the world. There really are. I've already decided what bands to get tattoos of, so I'm good. But, like, 1996 me was, for a brief moment, tempted to at the very least get that one star from the t-shirt. I can see that. 
Instead, I'll get the star from David Bowie. The better star. It's a good star. So what's the highlight of this album? What is the highlight for you? I mean, you're correct that the singles are the tracks with the most immediacy. It is probably the really big songs, the ones that you had known already, but also stretched out the full experience and trying to figure out what on earth Decision Tree brought them to record this album. What on earth Decision Tree got them to a point where they listened back to these 28 tracks and their only complaint was that it wasn't longer. That is fascinating and lovable. And it comes about at a period in music where making a statement this grand was very much frowned upon by the type of music that these guys were playing. And I love the confidence of that. And I love the self-belief of that. And I love the fact that it does kind of get there and come together as the piece that they wanted to make. Like, this is very engrossing to me. Like, this is not even a period of my life. It's a period of history that I'm just fascinated was allowed to happen. Yeah, because, I mean, when when this album was out and you and I were friends early on, one of the foundational aspects of our friendship was the sharing of music. And I don't remember you ever putting any of this on for me or introducing me to it. You introduced me to Garbage. You reintroduced me to the Pet Shop Boys, to Depeche Mode. After I thought Depeche Mode was long over, you were like, no, you should get into this. They're still going and still effing good. Yeah. And I can think of so many bands you introduced me to over the years, but you never were like, hey, you should listen to anything by Smashing Pumpkins. Well, because this isn't a band. I mean, this is actually, I'm being unfair. This is a band that sounds good on a mixtape. Yeah. But that's not the kind of relationship that I had with it. Hmm. Like, this was a band that when I listened to it, I would put on the whole record and then listen through it to the end. And that felt like the correct relationship to have with Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. So I didn't put individual tracks from it on somebody's mix. That explains it. Yeah, I can see that. Whereas Depeche Mode, you can listen to Songs of Faith and Devotion all the way through, and Kids at Home, you should. It is violently delightful. But you could also put I Feel You between two other alternative tracks and have it sound great there. Yeah, I I can definitely, definitely see that. Except that Smashing Pumpkins, to me, like this album, I get it why you would listen to the entire three hours, but they kind of feel like the sort of band that I would be happiest with their greatest hits collection. That checks out. Now expect to have death threats over that last comment, because incorrigibles are... uh, No, you'll get death threats from the 45-minute version of Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness that you are going to put together for me. And then I am going to post it on my Spotify rather than yours. And then the death threats will come to me rather than you. We've already planned all of this out. Okay. But my point is, there are individual songs on there that I would listen to that wouldn't be on the Greatest Hits collection. But I do kind of feel like my time is best spent with the Greatest Hits collection. That checks out. I mean, like, the time to have gotten so committed to this band that you were willing to put three hours of your life into listening to one of their records has well and truly been over for 20 years. Like, 
If you're going to do it, do it in 95. Everything that they have done since then, I'm sure to somebody coming to them new, makes them a less enjoyable prospect. But I guess that's about 45. We're going to end the episode the way that I end every episode, by asking you three questions, Olaf. Y'all ever going to listen to Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness again? Beginning to end, probably not. I think I'm actually likelier to listen to Monuments to an Elegy uh, beginning to end. That makes sense. I would also heartily recommend that you check out Siamese Dream. It's got some Butch Vig production work. The songwriting is of similar quality to the best moments on this, and it is a hell of a lot more concise. And finally, uh, if you were to end the episode on any song off this record, what would you pick? Obviously, Bullet with Butterfly Wings. Like, it's the biggest song for a reason. It's just legitimately great. It is. It is a world-conquering tune from a world-conquering band. That was probably the high watermark of these guys' career. This has been the Soundtrack to a Life. Follow along on Facebook and Twitter at SoundtrackCast, SoundtrackCast.com. Like us, share us, rate us, review us, treat us like a podcast. Olaf, got anything you want to push? Not at the moment, thanks. A big event coming up where I was going to speak about the history of labor unions and science fiction, but the audience isn't allowed to be in the room, so we've pushed it till September, and I'll let you know when tickets go on sale again. That makes sense. In uh, in lieu of Olaf's lack of social media presence or upcoming projects, buy a beer for a healthcare worker. They could use it right now. Ooh, yes. We will be back in two weeks' time talking about a very different record. Bye. Bye.